Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is. I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that this week uh, my guest is one of our most eminent historians. Andrew Roberts is the author of numerous books, critically acclaimed books, including uh, The Storm of War, which was about the Second World War, and an award-winning biography too of Napoleon. His most recent book is this, Churchill. It came out two years ago. This is now the, in paperback. Uh, it's been called the greatest single volume biography of Churchill ever written. Uh, Churchill obviously is in the news quite a lot at the moment. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, yeah. uh, Peter. Um, Andrew, on my way here today, uh, we're filming in Westminster. On my way here today, I passed the statue uh, in Parliament Square of Churchill. It's still boarded up. Um, I wondered, what what are your feelings when you see that? Oh, well, of course, Churchill would have hated it uh, being boarded up. He loved to be in the uh, in the centre of the fray. He loved to uh, be amongst the give and take of uh, politics and to uh, to be boarded up would be something that he would have hated. Um, he would have also hated, of course, the people who uh, both vandalised his statue um, from the extreme left and also then gave Zeke Heil salutes to his statue on uh, Sunday from the extreme right. He was always profoundly opposed to uh, to those kind of people, imprisoned uh, Sir Oswald Mosley, of course, the British Union of uh, Fascist leader, uh, and despised what they had to say. So um, I think when I when I see his uh, boarded up statue, of course, I feel sad for the wider cultural malaise that both that and the boarding up of our cenotaph, mm. um, our memorial to the war dead of the First and Second World Wars, uh, feel makes me feel about uh, this. Um, but it also uh, it also makes me uh, regret that we didn't have a proper police presence on the day that the statue was. Um, vandalised in broad daylight outside our legislature in the centre of our capital city. And also it sort of is still boarded up isn't it? I mean you know that particular moment has passed it makes one wonder how long is this going to be boarded up. Um, I know that you wrote recently in the Mail on Sunday uh, about this particular crisis going on at the moment um, and you talked actually about it being sort of part of a kind of culture war which has sort of been brewing anyway. That's how you see it, is it? Oh, certainly, yes. These attacks on Churchill have been uh, continuing for some time. Um, and you'll remember last year, John McDonnell mm. calling Churchill a villain, mm -hmm. which was a uh, uh, an outrageous remark, I think, to be made by the deputy leader of the Labour Party. And it goes back actually to various attacks, uh, spray paintings around and so on that have been made against Churchill, as well as a, a wider and much more respectable intellectual revisionist attack on Churchill, which uh, of course is the right way mm. to uh, this kind of thing. You should deal with it in rational and reasoned debate rather than with spray cans. Yes. Do you think, uh, I mean, there is a danger now, is there not, that this will now in the media at least forever be the controversial statue of Churchill. Um, I mean there is that problem and you could say to an extent that is a step in the culture war isn't it when that happens? 
Oh yes, no, no, no. The the uh, it's a well-known um, plan, an organisational plan. Um, in fact, the Maoists came up with this in the 1960s. The key thing is not to win the battle at the beginning. It is to uh, get noticed and then to get support. And uh, this, of course, is uh, all part of that. The um, BLM movement has uh, won a great victory, as far as they're concerned, in the great long-term struggle that they uh, want to uh, alter British national identity. The, they come from the extreme left, the leaders of this organisation. They are um, really impossible to attack because they've brilliantly, uh, as ever with communist organisations, latched on to the, um, to the passion of the hour, which is, uh, which is anti-racism, and they are riding it for all it's worth. But don't for a moment think that that's where it ends. It certainly doesn't. It doesn't end with statues about slavery or statues about Churchill, statues about anything to do with the empire. It's ultimately a much more profound part of the uh, culture war that uh, we've been fighting in this country for a long time. Uh, do you think that, as an historian, that the way in which history has been taught, or for that matter, not taught over a period of time, has made this kind of thing easier? I mean, that people just simply have no context anymore? Undoubtedly, yes. Um, ever since the 1960s, the educational establishment has not believed in heroes. Um, it's believed in villains and it's brought up a number, large number of them, but it hasn't believed in anybody that we should be looking up to particularly. Um, and it does believe in knocking down many of the ones that we've had in the past. And so this is, uh, and it's of course part of the greater uh, concept of um, of trying to move away from the great uh, person, great man and woman view of history. Um, and because we've been following this for half a century and because Winston Churchill is not taught objectively and properly to anything like the degree that he ought to be, considering he is our greatest national hero in our schools, this is what is ultimately the um, inevitable result. Mm. Now, having said that, it is important to remember that, of course, he did believe in a hierarchy of races. Mm. Um, born in 1874, he was at school at the same time as Charles Darwin was still alive. And the and people in those days believed something that we know to be ludicrous and absurd and obscene indeed, um, about the whites being on top of a, uh, of a hierarchy of races. But that was considered scientific fact at the time. And I don't believe that he should be attacked because he believed what the majority of people believed at the time. Don't you think actually that he's attacked actually more by the people who attack him? He's attacked much more simply because he symbolizes uh, sort of British history in a way. I mean, he's the ultimate symbol of identity, isn't he? That, and also of course he was a conservative prime minister. Yeah. Um, would very much doubt whether a Labour prime minister statue would be uh, treated as viciously as uh, as this. Um, I think that he was a very profound, uh, in fact, in many ways, our first really strong anti-communist um, uh, leader as well. And so they would hate him for that. Um, and he was a true believer in everything to do with um, freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. And that's also that uh, I think there's quite unpopular on the, uh, on the left at the moment. So all in all, uh, yes, he is the, He's the sort of magnet. Um, but this is why he should have been protected, why he should have had phalanxes of policemen on that day, rather mm. than people watch what was going on 
which is what, what actually uh, happened. Mm. And, um, and policemen going down one knee and policemen uh, turning their backs in Bristol on uh, basically mob violence. And this is the most extraordinary thing that uh, part of what I mentioned is cultural malaise um, that the um, that the authorities don't uh, treat this in the same ways that the authorities would have treated it back in the, I don't know, the 1950s, 60s, up to the 1980s. Yes, I think that I know you're a great admirer of uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that she probably wouldn't have let that situation come to pass quite so quickly. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Speaking no, of exactly. And by, by, by the way, let me just let me just point out: this isn't just this. I'm, this isn't just an, an attack on uh, on you know, uh, Boris. If you look at um, what um, Emmanuel Macron allowed with the Gilets Jaunes, mm. uh, when they entered the uh, Arc de Triomphe and chopped off the heads of the statue of Napoleon Bonaparte. Can you imagine Charles de Gaulle putting up with that no. kind of thing? <laughs> There is a, um, there is, as I say, a much wider, geographically wider, but also uh, historically wider cultural malaise in this country that allows, that, first of all, that anyone would want to do it in the first place. Mm. Secondly, that allows it to go and so far go unpunished. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk to you about Churchill the Man in a, in a minute, but before we leave that, um, uh, go on to that. You talked there a bit about uh, the, the lack of resistance to, to what's been going on generally with our heritage. I mean, at the moment, um, as I understand it, uh, you know, the knives are out now for Arthur Bomber Harris, you know, in the statue of him in the Strand. Uh, so far as I know, there's nothing to do with slavery there. That's just something to do with our history. Um, and I just, I just wondered, do you think that... And what... Monty, we, re we read in the Times that Monty, yes. um, General... But Lord Montgomery is also going to be uh, uh, attacked. Yes, yes. Um, uh, so, uh, so these Second World, World War figures obviously are under um, under attack. As I say, as an attempt to raise awareness mm. uh, for the um, BLM movement, mm. um, moves on to other um, cultural icons. Yes. Um, obviously, we have a Prime Minister who's written a biography of uh, Churchill, and uh, also one that tends to well, has always, I think, prided himself on his general s sense of the sweep of history, shall we say. Um, do you think that he's, were you sort of happy with his response or do you think it was, do you think it was adequate? I was actually, yes, yes. I thought it was, um, it was what needed to be said. Mm. I wouldn't have minded if it had been said uh, the day before, mm. um, rather than on the, on the, uh, uh, on the Sunday, but um, nonetheless, it's just one of those things. He's a very busy man. The key thing is, though, that he must back up what he says. I, I would like to see people, including that teacher in um, Bristol, who uh, was part of the uh, attack on the statue in Bristol, to be prosecuted, because yeah. otherwise we really are just allowing um, mob rule to decide what our built environment is going to look like. And that yeah. would just be a complete... Um, uh, complete abdication, I think, of uh, of uh, our responsibility, not just to ourselves and to the next generation, but to the past generations as well. Yes. Um, Churchill is one of these figures. Uh, I can think of a few in British history, but he's one of those figures which um, I think people almost feel that they know, uh, that they, they feel they know them. And I, I wonder what your observations are. How does a figure 
almost regardless of what they actually did, but how does the figure sort of at attain that kind of level of affection in the popular memory? I mean, I think Elizabeth I is another one, for example. I think it requires quite a good deal of uh, selective amnesia, in fact. <laughs> we feel we know him, but partly, I suppose, because he isn't taught in schools uh, today to anything like the degree that he ought to be. Um, you can almost go through your entire history teaching and leave um, history teaching off at the age of 16 and, and, and hardly even have heard of uh, Winston Churchill. There was, a recent, there was a recent survey in which 20% of British teenagers believed that he was a fictional character. Mm. Um, so you, uh, you need a slight, slight selective amnesia in that I'm not sure that that many people know about uh, various aspects, all the things he got wrong apart from anything else. He yeah. constantly made shoulders in his career. Um, the Gallipoli catastrophe, of course, he was on the wrong side of the abdication crisis, the gold standard crisis, um, women's suffrage and so on. Um, and so although the things that he got right in the 20th century, spotting the rise of the uh, Wilhelmine militarist uh, um, Prussia and then Germany as it was, and then uh, Adolf Hitler, of course, and then also the Soviet imperialism in Eastern Europe after the Second World War. To have got those big three right means that you deserve a massive great statue in Parliament Square. Mm. But it doesn't mean you can get an awful lot of much smaller things wrong. Mm. Um, he's an extraordinary figure in the sense as well that uh, my, my father was a very typical in his admiration of Churchill. You know, he's that generation who grew up in the war and it, you could say nothing bad about him. But I think that one of the things that obviously he admired about him was that, it, that he was a man who seemed to pack about three or four lifetimes into one. Yeah, extraordinary, just the sheer energy. Yeah. I mean, he was at the forefront of every major issue uh, in British politics, really from the time that he entered the House of Commons at the beginning of the 20th century to the time that he left it two thirds of the way through it. Yeah. Uh, he, he never allowed a, a, a major um, struggle to take place where he wasn't in the forefront in one way or another. And so, um, and so your father's right, you know, it's, he was somebody who packed, uh, who packed the most extraordinary amount of uh, achievement. Mm. And as I said, uh, occasional disasters as well, mm. um, into a single lifetime. Mm. Do, I mean, did you, when you started writing the book, and I mean, has your, did your admiration for Churchill uh, grow or, or diminish, you know, over the period of writing it? It grew, um, I would say. I mean, the, the point I think that uh, I realised that this was a truly extraordinary person was when um, the Queen allowed me to be the first Churchill biographer to use her father's diaries. Right. Uh, King George VI met Churchill every Tuesday of the Second World War and they uh, had an audience at Buckingham Palace together and the um, King then wrote down everything Churchill said. So we have this extraordinary and fascinating source which I've used a great deal of course in my book. And one of the things that one sees in those meetings is quite how we could trust the King and the King would never say anything and the diaries were not going to be allowed to uh, be seen for another 75 years. Uh, he, he told him everything that, uh, that was going on in his mind um, every single Tuesday of the Second World War. Mm. And this was the thing that made me 
uh, appreciate him even more than I uh, did before. And I'd already written four books um, with Ch mm. Churchill in the title subtitle over the last 30 years. Mm. Um, it was the recognition that of all of the things that were on his mind during the war, of course, but also the um, depths of his frustrations and his irritations and uh, and and all of the of the burdens on his shoulders mm. and uh, and the way that he um, explained them and and worked out with the king how he was going to deal with them. Uh, he had this from a quite a young age from the, reading the book. It's not the first book about Churchill I've read, I have to say. Um, but there, <laughs> but there, he had this sort of uh, sense of that he was the coming man, shall we say, that he, that, that he had, something was already in place for him. Destiny, I suppose. Um, where do that's, you think that... That's right, exactly. Yes. I, I subtitled the book um, Walking with Destiny yeah. for precisely the reason. It's a reference, of course, to the 10th of May, 1940, uh, the day on which he became prime minister, uh, when he said, um, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour mm. and for this trial. Mm. And, and he, he had thought, he believed that he was walking with destiny really ever since, um, when, since he was a 16-year-old schoolboy mm. at Harrow, when he, uh, he told his best friend that in their lives there would be terrible upheavals, great struggles, um, but that he would be at the forefront of saving London and saving England. He said this when he was 16, and then 50 years later, exactly yeah. that uh, took place. So a very, very powerful sense of, a driving sense of personal destiny. Where do you think that derived from, though? Oh, um, a number of places. Uh, the first, of course, was uh, his parents. Mm. Uh, his father, um, who was a very important Victorian politician, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Lord Randolph Churchill, who despised him and had no time for him. And as he grew up, he, he showed his contempt for his uh, son um, in a way that was obviously uh, entirely crushing. And, uh, and so all his life, even though his father died at the age of 45 when Churchill was only 20, um, he wanted to prove to his long dead father, a shade of his father, that he was actually a, a worthwhile individual. His mother ignored him as well um, for a very long period, indeed, until uh, he became a a signatory on her trust fund, uh, at which point she a great deal of this, this great spendthrift lady yeah. uh, showed a great deal of interest in him, yeah. but uh, not in the early days. And he wrote in his autobiography, My Early Life, uh, that she shone for me like the evening star, brilliant but at a distance. Yeah. Yeah. So a very sad thing to, to say. He was, because they were both spendthrifts, he was broke all his life, so he had to write 37 books and over 800 articles in order to. Um, uh, to have cash to spend. And that was another reason that uh, he had great drive. He became the best paid war correspondent in the world at one point. And, um, and also he did have this as a personal destiny uh, that he was um, being in some way saved for uh, great deeds. Mm. And he had many, many brushes with death mm. in his life. Mm. Uh, again and again, um, he very nearly died and uh, on several occasions, he talked about the invisible wings that beat over him. Um, obviously, wings that were there in order to uh, protect him for the great when he was going to uh, defeat Hitler and the Nazis. Mm. 
We do. You mentioned his parents, so we do tend to forget, don't we, that he was sort of half American. Um, and, and I, I wonder how that. I mean, that presumably did inform, you know, his outlook and his politics to an extent. That's right. Yes, uh, he did go through. Uh, his mother was born in Brooklyn, Jenny Jerome, and uh, he and he went to America sixteen times in his life, which was an awful lot more than most British politicians did. Mm. Um, he used his half American background very much uh, during the Second World War to um, to uh, bring the Americans round uh, to the idea of a full scale alliance. Um, and he loved America and he went back there, as I say, a, a great deal. He was um, did go through an anti-American phase in the 1920s when he thought the Americans were squeezing too much money through war reparations. Uh, and war debt repayments out of the um, out of the world financial system, and that uh, that was one of the reasons for the great crash of 1929. Mm. So he wasn't a sort of uh, starry-eyed follower of uh, Americans under all circumstances. But his great speech uh, in uh, September 1943 at Harvard, in which he talked about um, us having some kind of a of a sort of joint citizenship with America, mm. shows. How much, how far he was willing to take this concept that he himself pioneered and championed of the English-speaking peoples. Mm. Uh, you actually carried on his 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 series of books on the English-speaking peoples, didn't you? You wrote, uh, uh, it, I think he stops around about the death of Victoria, if I remember, and and you carried That's on, right. didn't you? Yes. Um, yes, he stops in uh, 1901, and so I brought it from 1901 up to um, up to the time of publication, which I think was about uh, 2005 or so. Yeah. Um, so uh, it was a fairly hubristic thing to have done, <laughs> today. Yeah. Um, but um, but but fun. Yes, um, I, I understand. I think it was about this particular his his uh, English speaking peoples that Orwell said when he was reviewing it. Uh, George Orwell said he paid it the highest compliment in that it was the work of a human being. I don't know whether you've heard that quote. I have, yes. It, yes, he, 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 uh, yes, exactly. He meant a sort of a fully rounded individual. Yeah. Yeah. Churchill uh, undoubtedly was. Mm. Um, and of course, Orwell and, uh, and Churchill did have uh, certain things in common. They both uh, were patriots, mm. of course. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, although Orwell went through a communist uh, stage, he wound up being a, uh, one of the most um, eloquent anti-communists of the 20th century. And so Churchill appreciated that in his, uh, in his work. There's a very good um, book about, uh, about Churchill and Orwell that was published um, just a couple of years ago, which I do recommend as, as soon as you finish mine. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, I have. <laughs> um, he was never, what you mentioned there about, uh, you know, uh, the, the financial crisis of the 20s. Uh, Churchill himself was never very good with money, was he? He wasn't a great sort of like, he, he didn't know how to save, or he didn't, he was, he was always bordering on being a bit broke, wasn't he? Yes, um, as I say, partly that's because he didn't have very much money to begin with yes. because of his parents being great spenders. And secondly, because as his friend F.E. Smith said, Winston is always satisfied with the best of everything. <laughs> he spent, uh, he constantly outspent his, uh, his income. Yes. He wasn't, it wasn't until he was in his early 70s that he actually finally um, managed to um, break even, to... Um, 
get out of out of the red. Mm. Uh, sorry, his early seventies when he signed his book contract for the memoirs of the Second World War. Up until that point, he was um, he was broke continually, and we are very lucky, of course, that he was mm. because it meant that he had to write these books and articles, mm. and uh, we we're able to get into the mind of the man so much more uh, easily because of that. Yes. Um, Andrew, when, when you uh, talked at the beginning about, you know, how, in fact, Churchill is seen as a kind of fictional character to many young people, he's also uh, apparently in various surveys, you know, there's an ad with a bulldog for an insurance company, I think. And some people thought that this was this was actually what they meant by Churchill. What would you what, what would your observations be about how we change the way history is actually taught? how our island story, if you like, is carried on. What would you like to see happen? Oh, I think just try and teach it, you know, mm. treat it totally objectively. You've got to uh, teach the bad uh, sides of things like the British Empire, for example. Of course you must, mm. but you should see it in an overall, um, an overall arc, a, a trajectory that appreciates that for most of the people in most of the empire for most of the time, it was an extraordinary good. Mm. It was something that brought incredible benefits, that brought um, peace for a very long time in places that hadn't had it for, for ages, mm. that brought the doubling of the um, life expectancy for Indians, for example, that uh, enormously increased the numbers mm. of people. Things that Churchill was incredibly proud of, and which no racists, mm. no true racists, would be proud of the yeah, fact yeah. that he doubled life expectancy of non-white people and increased the numbers of non-white people, or at least the British Empire did, of which he was a, a champion. You know, that's another reason that I think we can uh, we can ignore these um, these attacks on him today, um, because underlying them is the complete uh, misconception that. Because he believed in a racial hierarchy, he was therefore the same as Adolf Hitler. No, he wasn't. No, no. He was the exact opposite. He was somebody whose who's sense of moral purpose of the British Empire, along with most people who were uh, working for the British Empire, working in the British Empire and defending the British Empire, did it because they had an altruistic sense that it was good not just for Britain, but also for the nations of the empire, because they didn't see economics for example as a zero-sum game yeah. they saw it as something where development would be able to help both sides mm. and if we were to teach the um, the next generation that i think that we would find that we wouldn't have people with spray paints um acting like ignoramuses in the center of our great capital mm. well uh yes uh, i think this is a unfortunate a story that's going to continue for a while um but before we before we leave it there, uh, Andrew, I just wanted could you actually just settle one thing uh, during the whole Brexit argument? Uh, if we can cast our minds back to now, what seems like a, another world? Uh, yes, Ch Churchill was used by both sides, wasn't he? He was used by both sides, and I wonder what was his attitude to Britain and the EU and Britain in Europe? Can you settle it for us? <laughs> Um, yes, I believe I can. I, I've worked very hard on this. There are lots of quotations, of course, in my book about this uh, this issue. Um, he wanted to have a, um, a, a European Federation, European project. He wanted to have 
Europe come together. He never wanted, uh, as he put it, Teuton to fight Gaul. He'd lost too many friends in both the First World War and the Second World War when Teuton fought Gaul ever to want that to happen again. Um, but he didn't believe that it that the United Kingdom needed to be a member of that uh, federation. He was all in favour of there being a European coming together, but he never wanted Britain to be part of it because he saw Britain as the ideal place that could be part of the special relationship with the United States, which he, a term that he invented in that speech at, at Harvard I mentioned earlier. He also saw us as being a link with the Commonwealth, um, the, uh, the, all the countries of the Commonwealth that we'd be able to trade with, and also with, um, with Europe. Uh, uh, he wanted us to be a friend and an ally um, of, uh, of Europe, but never a member no. of uh, European Union as it became, mm. or the Commonwealth as it was during his lifetime. Um, and, uh, and he made that pretty clear in a series of, uh, of memos and various things he said to Montgomery and so on. Uh, all of which you'll find in my uh, in my book. Well, uh, the the book again, of course, is Churchill by Andrew Roberts, um, and it is it is quite brilliant. Thank you very very much, uh, Andrew, for for joining us. Uh, that's it this week for so what you're saying is uh, just to remind you the book, which is wonderful, Churchill by Andrew Roberts. It's available in all good bookshops when they open, and indeed, of course, on Amazon. Um, we look forward to seeing you. Next time, thank you very much.